Sorry. <laughs> no, you're, it's all good. It's all good. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are righteous, and your rules are right. You have appointed your testimonies, the, 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 the word of God that teaches, which teaches us how to become righteous in all faithfulness. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be zealous for your word and that, that our zeal would consume us because our foes forget your words. You promise, uh, your promise is well tried and, and your servants love it, all of your promises. And though we are small and despised, we do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are our delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give us understanding that we may live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's good to be back. Um, uh, we, uh, it's kind of a strange experience for me to, uh, it's the first time I've ever been away from uh, my congregation that long. Um, and uh, I had an opportunity to teach at a um, Lutheran Layman's League conference in upstate New York in Chautauqua. Uh, so I did that the first weekend that I was away, and uh, we came back on, on that Sunday. I came back on that Sunday, and um, we left at 3 in the morning on Monday uh, to go on vacation. So, uh, and that was a, a good and a rich blessing, and, and, uh, um, but it's still, it's still strange. We went to church by listening to the Lutheran Hour while we were driving through, you know, Sequoia, on like you know these ten mile an hour curves, and it's gorgeous and everything, but it's it's not the same thing. It's you know we were thankful for it, but you know it's still kind of weird being away from everybody. So to get started, we do need to backtrack just a little bit to get some context before we jump into uh, Romans five verse six, because we spent the three weeks before I left talking about Romans 5, 1 through 5. And I'm not going to really talk about them, but I just want to read them again to, uh, to give us some context. Uh, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified, and that word justified, it, it means that, uh, that we have been passively made or declared righteous. You know, we've been talking about righteousness through this whole thing. You know, justified sounds like it's something different, but in, in, the, in the Greek, it's the... It's the variation on the same word, okay? Uh, so we're passively, it's a passive uh, um, verb here, passively made or declared righteous by or from uh, faith. Uh, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So, that's what we talked about before, uh, before I left, and now we're getting into some new material here. So Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though 
perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified, same as before, that we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So, take a look at verse 6. What is the Notice that the subject of the sentence is Christ. Christ is the one doing the action here. This is actually a little bit more clear uh, in, in the Greek in the way that it's laid out, but the sentence in itself is a little bit more confusing. So um, when you translate things, um, yeah, Wes can testify to this, sometimes languages like to order things differently than what we're used to. You know, they have a different logic in their mind or they have different markers that allow them to understand you know, how things work together. And so sometimes when you come from a language like that and you bring it into English, you end up changing the word order. So you don't end up with the word Christ until you're you know, three quarters of the way through the sentence. But Christ is the subject. So you know, for a while we were still weak, that's setting up the, the, the context of what's going on. But the real thrust of the sentence is Christ died for the ungodly. So, if Christ is the subject, who is the object? The ungodly, yeah. Um, that word that is translated ungodly there, it, it can mean impious uh, or godless. And, uh, and so, when we say Christ died for the ungodly, Think about this for a minute. If Christ died for you, that means you must be ungodly. Ungodly, yes. Ungodly is all of us. I mean, yeah. Yeah, apart from Christ, that's exactly what we are. Yeah. Well, that's kind of how it starts out. It's while we're so sinners, you know. Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, in that, that whole context, you know, it. What's really being done here is any sense that yeah, that you deserve this is completely being taken away. You know, it's really emphasizing that this salvation that we have is it's a gift that God gives us. So, what does ungodliness look like? Us. <laughs> Well, I think, of things, I think of not having a conscience. Not having a conscience, okay. You know, just willy nilly, do whatever you want. Okay. Yeah, kind of chaotic. Interesting. Okay, chaotic, yeah. Right after the fruits of the Spirit, there's the other fruits. Yes. Yeah. God's been dealing with the ungodly ever since Genesis 3, right? Mm -hmm. So check this out in Isaiah chapter 65 verses 1 through 6. I've got the passage there for you. He says, I was ready. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. 
the ungodly don't ask for God. He says, I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. Um, in the law of God, it says that every altar is supposed to be made with unhewn stones. So if you're making an altar out of bricks, you're really just kind of going to God and thumbing your nose at him. Um, and uh, uh, who sit in tombs and spend the nights in secret places. Necromancy? Uh, offering, you know, magical type of, uh, of uh, uh, worship. Who eat pig's flesh. Now, I like to eat pig's flesh. <laughs> Why is this a problem for Isaiah? Exactly. Because he's Jewish, right? This was part of their dietary laws. You don't, you don't eat pig's flesh. And broth of tainted meat in their vessels. Who say, keep to yourself. Do not come nearly near me. For I am too holy for you. Now there's a key characteristic of the ungodly. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. They become a law unto themselves. We become a law unto ourselves. You know, yeah. I am too holy for God. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. How's, how's that for a picture? That's the, the human condition uh, apart from God's intervention in our lives. You know, this, I think this is difficult for us, uh, particularly as, um, as Lutherans, because we're part of a tradition that you know, baptizes babies. You know, and uh, in this idea of you know growing up, you know, and I've always been baptized. I've always you know been part of this life of the the, the church. You know, I, I'm looking around and I don't see too many people who convert converted to Christianity until later in their lives. You know, that experience of before and after is something that is a little bit foreign to us. You know, I think that this is what makes people who have these really great conversion stories um, so appealing to us. You know, and, and there is a great encouragement in that. You know, that when somebody says, I was this, and then I experienced the love of God in Christ, and now my life is this. But the reality is that, you know, we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. And we all wrestle continually with this um, situation in our life where we're always drawn back toward ungodliness despite the fact that we have been passively declared righteous. It's a gift that we don't earn. 
uh, even after our conversion. Give me one more, one more second, and I'm coming to you. Okay. Now, that does not mean that after your conversion you should be the same as you were before. But I am saying that the things that you do after your conversion don't earn your righteousness any more than you know, anything else that we do. Ed. It just made me think of amazing grace. And yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong on this. We tend to think of that as being written by a former slaver. Yeah. But it's not true. It was written by a slaver. He did not give up the slave trade until 10 years after he wrote the hymn. Oh, I don't know that. Okay. Well, that's, that, I, I heard it from, on, I can't quote it, but it was some yeah. source I considered reputable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was just a huge sort of illustration to me as to the, the state of we're saved but continue to sin and, and things are revealed as we go on. And I don't think he was, I, I'm sort of guessing here, I don't think for 10 years he was saying, well, this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. I think it took him that long to, 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 to really realize. Yeah. I think that's possible. It also might be, uh, this is wrong, and I don't know what else to do. Because this is how I make my living. That's true. And, and I'll be destitute if I walk away from this. I think that that's a big motivator for people that keeps them in their sin. You know, they're just like, uh, they're afraid of what will happen if they follow in obedience. Yeah, because yeah, I, I personally know that too. And I know when I um, recognized the fact that I was a child of God and that Jesus Christ, I had a personal relationship with him, I, I didn't immediately change my behavior and the, the things I sort of made... Uh, made excuses until those excuses uh, couldn't justify them anymore and and stuff and so it, it was it was this uh, yeah I I know the time that I recognized Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior um, and I was still very much in 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 sin which I still am but not not to the extent that I was we're not the same ones right exactly yes you know um Hopefully we grow and we mature in the faith, and, and that shows in the life that we live. But there's always that pull back. And sometimes, you know, I was pulled toward this, but I'm not going to do that. And so I end up over here. Let me just share one thing, too, one thing beyond that. Um, I, I moved here from South Carolina um, because I prayed consistently for a couple of years on wanting a changed life, and I kept getting moved back to Ohio, and I kept saying, no! <laughs> but when I finally did, and finally turned it over, you know, turned that move over against, okay, I, I can't do this on my own, and he just blessed me with so many things and made things happen, and circumstance people were just like who do you know you know and and um, it, it that that really helped me strengthen my faith too I got away from the influences of yeah. of the sinful people that I hung around um, and was able to establish new relationships and more Christian relationships yeah. here in Ohio so yeah it's, it's a process for sure yeah, yeah. I think that a lot of times it's sort of like a ship in a storm, right? You know, you 
you go out of your port and you're all of a sudden caught up in something that you can't really control. Uh, but it's really difficult sometimes to realize, I can't control this, I need to give up, I need to leave. Um, you know, like, not, not, to, not to belabor the metaphor, but there are, so many, there are so many shipwrecks that you hear about where people, so many people could have been saved if they just left. Yeah. Um, but they don't want to because you've got this really big thing that you've already built up and it looks safe. It's supposed to be safe, but it's not. Um, and it falls out from there. Yeah, and I, I also think that, um, uh, well, I, on vacation, I pulled out some of the, uh, the, the old music that, uh, um, you know, kind of the, the Jesus music stuff that I, I like to listen to, particularly when I was in college. And uh, there was a, um, a Christian artist by the name of Rich Mullins. I was just thinking of him. <laughs> I, I really, I really, uh, I got to see him in concert in Ann Arbor when we were there. I think you took me to see him and Michael Card, wasn't it? I don't remember. No, it wasn't Rich Mullins. It's Phil. It's Phil Keegy. It was somebody else. Sorry. Yeah, I never got to see Mullins. Um, but uh, uh, he he sings this song that uh, you know we're, we're not as we're not as strong as we think we are. You know, and uh, I think that sometimes you know. We, we don't recognize our, our position of, of weakness and dependence on God uh, so that uh, um, we're trying to do these things on our own instead of trusting in this righteousness that comes to us as a gift. And then that flows into the other areas of our life too and how we relate to others uh, and, and look at them as well. Um, you know, so... Being, being in a position where we're relying uh, on Jesus for anything that we would call as righteousness in our lives, um, that kind of chafes our, our, our ego. You know, so when the next verse that I have listed there is a reminder, you know, that Jesus, you know, says that he specifically came to seek and to save the lost. So while we were still weak, he came for the ungodly, okay? This, this was his, his program uh, from the very beginning. So when we think about this in terms of what does it mean for our, our conversion and our salvation and our faith, I want to take us right back to Romans 3, 21 through 25a. You know, now a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It's something that's not earned although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hey, well, we've all experienced that. And are justified. That is, again, made righteous passively, you know, declared righteous um, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Remember that propitiation word. We spent a long time talking about that being the mercy seat, the place where God meets us in his mercy. One of the problems I think that we have nowadays is there's so many good Christian radio programs, except those Christian radio programs leave your salvation up to you. 
You have to make the decision. You have to ask Jesus into your It's not God that does it. It's you that does it. And it sounds so plausible when they're saying it, but it's so wrong and it leads us away from the truth. And sometimes I think we need to get away from the Christian radio. That could be. Or at least be discerning when you listen to it. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to be discerning all the time. It is, it is. Because they are so sure. <laughs> They're so positive. Yeah. And most of us have friends or neighbors or relatives who follow that way. And they say, you have to invite Jesus into your heart. Well, that puts it back on me doing it, not God doing it. Yeah. You know, and there is part of us that sinful, ungodly, you know, Isaiah 65, you know, part of us that wants somehow to be glorious, that wants somehow to have some part in this being righteous or being saved, you know, so that we, in a sense, stand with God kind of on equal footing. I mean, I might be on a little lower step, but, you know, I'm still standing there at least in, in kind of semi-worthy of being there. Um, because our, our, our nature just rankles at this idea that salvation is completely and totally a gift. So in, in Psalm 130, there's this, it's kind of a strange verse, if you, know, if you think about it. It says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Oh, that makes sense, yeah. I mean, I know my sin, and if God sees that, I, I certainly can't stand in his presence. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Why would we fear the one who forgives us? Because we're not on equal footing with him. Because all of a sudden, I'm not on equal footing. I think, too, is, is um, forgiveness doesn't take away consequence. Okay. Yeah, sometimes there are earthly consequences that we're going to face that are, are, are scary. But if I'm coming to someone, the only one who can forgive me, I am going to find myself in a lower place and in a place of need. And that can be a fearful thing for our sinful nature. Also, I think that there's, in modern culture especially, there's sort of this idea that you go to, you go to the mechanic to fix, your, to fix your car, you go to the doctor to heal you when you're sick, so naturally you go to the pastor to fix your sin, right? But that's not how it works. Um, and and I and you know when you're talking about the radio programs and everything, and you know all of the associated Christian media, I think that a large part of it is, um, you know, I know that I when I when I'm talking to someone about my faith, you know, on the one hand I want to have the answer, but I don't have the answer, and and so it's a, you get into this awkward situation where you where you say like oh well how do I do this then and uh, and you know. It's not up to me. You're going to have to take that up with the. You're going to have to take that up with God, you know. Um. But I think they don't know how, and that's my maybe how they yeah. why they would come to the pastor is to mm-hmm. help me know how. But but this is but but, but what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to put across though is that the the mechanism of salvation does not include man. Right. Right. And, but every single other part of our lives does. 
and so it's very difficult then for uh, it's it's very then difficult to communicate that, or, or I should say it can be it can be difficult to communicate that. I would say that, though that the mechanism of salvation does con does include a man. Okay, well the man, but yeah, you know, <coughs> you know be, because we we run a, a risk there sometimes, you know. We like to see Jesus sometimes just as God, you know, and we emphasize the deity. And sometimes that means that we lose the humanity. Sorry, it, it's a bad and, habit of mine. No, you're you're when fine. I say, when I say man, what I mean is humanity in general. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm just you know I want to be a little you know a little bit more clear because this is a, this is a really important point mm -hmm. because you know when Jesus ascends into heaven. Is he still man? Is he still human? Yes. Yes, he is. He takes his humanity into the divinity. Mm -hmm. Do I understand how that happens? No. Not in the least. Nor do I understand how the divine can become human. How do we know that? How do we know he took his... Because if... And maybe I have... Before, he, before the incarnation, Yeah. is he both? No. Okay. So how do we know he takes the humanity back? How do we know that it wasn't just this 33-year while he's here? I know you know that answer because you look very confident, so tell me. <laughs> so start with Easter. The body's no longer in the grave, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus appears bodily. Right. He appears to them over a period of um, 40 days, right? Then he gathers with them on the mountain. He's there physically, bodily, and he ascends into heaven. He doesn't just kind of poof, disappear. It says a cloud hides him from sight. And so, um, you know, he is, he is the God-man. This is the role that he plays as the, uh, the arbitrator between humanity and God, the one who can touch both. And that remains for eternity. Yeah. Well, I get to, I get all the way yeah. now. I mean, I get all the way even till he ascends. But in my head, somehow, once <clears throat> he ascends and he is re he has returned his glory, and he is the glorious sitting at the right hand of God with the light and the you know and whatever. I kind of imagine he had shed his humanity at that. It had done its work. You know, he had done what needed to be done with his sure. humanity, and he had returned to his original state. No. No, because do we, some, do we have some scripture that says doesn't uh, doesn't Jesus still have scars when he appears to Paul? He does. Yeah, which would be rather odd if he was a purely divine figure. Right now he is glorified. Yeah, you know, um, but uh, uh, he touches John in the Revelation. There's a physical manifestation there. Hebrews speaks to him as our high priest that he still functions this priestly role to give himself. Um, I'm not thinking of a particular verse that says, you know, um, you know that the humanity is, you know. No, that, that's good evidence with the retouching down. But, but, he, but he, he is and continues to be um, God who became man. And, you know, he, he takes on that whole new identity in order to... Um, in order to be the arbitrator, to be the one that comes between the Father and us. 
and, and in a sense is able to put a hand on us both, as Job says. You know, I want somebody who can put a hand on us both. Reach out to God, which he does you know, in, in his divinity, but he also reaches out to us because he's in his humanity. So when he is incarnate, the divinity is hidden in the humanity. You know, so that we are able to approach him through that humanity. And that's still the way that we approach him. Is, is, you know, this is the way we know God. If you want to know God, you've got to know Jesus. That's the only way to really know God. Because he's put everything in that second person of the Trinity for us to be able to approach him. Now, in heaven, the humanity is hidden within the divinity. You know, we're still able to approach him through that humanity but his functioning, you know, as he comes to us in his body and blood in the Lord's Supper, you know, is not locally, um, uh, locally situated, I guess, uh, um, uh, anymore. He's there for everyone now, in all time and in all space. You mentioned pre-incarnation. Um, he was not bodily present. But what, who appeared to Abraham? And, uh, yeah, no, I mean, yeah. there are definitely times that we think that uh, the second person of the Trinity yeah. um, appears in the Old Testament, and we talk about him as the pre-incarnate Christ. Okay. Yeah. Um, Samson's um, uh, mom, as well, is another time. And, uh, um, Daniel. Uh, in Daniel, in Joshua... You know, um, when he meets the, uh, the angel who is, you know, the, the general of the, the armies of the angels of the Lord. I can't, I, you know, I, if you were like, that's not the pre-incarnate Christ, I would not be like, well, you need to be excommunicated now because clearly, right, right. you know. Um, but we think, at least a lot of us do, you know, and there are other instances like that. Yeah. We want to understand and it's a hard thing for us to understand that we never will be able to, at least not on this side of the grave. It's a bigger thing than what our minds can get around. There are so many things in this world that, that we can't understand, and yet somehow we want and expect to be able to understand all this stuff in the Bible, and it's just to just, just believe. Yeah. You don't have to understand, you just have to believe it because God said it's true. Right, but, but we also don't want to just sit back and say, oh, I don't need to think about this. You know, um, think about it is different from expecting to understand it. But sometimes when we think about things, then we start to understand bits and pieces. And, right. you know, but it's like 1 Corinthians 13, now I see but as in a mirror um, darkly. I think that that's a big part of our experience of how we relate to our life of faith. You know, we can see things. You know, um, a mirror at that time is usually some kind of a piece of polished metal. Um, you know, so, it, I don't know, uh, they still have these in, in uh, they have them at least in the men's rooms. I can't speak to the ladies' rooms, uh, but, uh, you know, where they'll have a piece of, like, stainless steel that's, you know, you know fairly reflective, uh, but not very, but you just can't break it. Uh, the important people get glass. That, that's fair, actually. <laughs> the people who don't. The people who tend to not vandalize. Um, <laughs> well, if, if you're camping out, a lot of times camping shaving kits. Yes. 
yeah. there, there will be a piece of metal in there. You don't have a glass mirror in yeah. there, but you have a piece you know, of metal. It, it, so you know, you can you can see what's behind you, or you know, but it's it's not as clear as you know seeing face to face. In a, in a glass darkly is some uh -huh. translation thing. It's really in a steel but darkly. It, it's in a reflection. It's in a reflection. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Typically, they would have been made of bronze, but that's yes. not here nor there. Yeah. So how do you bring that idea over into English? Is one of those yeah. things. Yeah. So. Um, I'm sorry. So, you know, when we we. When we come to faith, it is really a matter of God coming to, to us. You know, and this is not something that uh, you know, I sought him out or, or anything like that. Now, having come to faith, do we seek after God? Absolutely. We've been doing Psalm 119 for our, our prayers all through this. And I mean, that's very much. I love your law, O oh Lord. You know, it's a light to my path and, and all of these kinds of things. <clears throat> the relationship changes now that Jesus is part of our lives. But we still feel this pull and this tension that Paul's really going to dig into uh, in chapter 7. When he talks about the good that I would, I don't, and all of that fun stuff. So, I, I like in verses 7 and 8, uh, he, he says um, that uh, you know, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die um, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I think about, you know, who, who would you die for? Who would you be willing to give your life for? You know, we've got this, uh, these incredible people who serve our country. Um, and I'm thinking military broadly, but specifically of the Secret Service. Mm -hmm. You know, these are men and women who, jump in front of the bullet. they will yeah. stand, yep, they will jump in front of the bullet in order to save the president, you know, and places, you know, they will give their lives. You know, I, I, I am amazed uh, by that, that dedication. Uh, often, you know, parents are willing to give their life for their children. Um, you, you will hear me sometimes say, if I have to choose between you and one of my kids, I will do your funeral for free. <laughs> I'll hold you to that. That's fair. That is fair. Um, but it's still a last resort. Yeah, you know, yeah. It was like Catton said, it's one thing to give your life for your country, but the objective is to make the other guy give his life for his country. Right, exactly. Him. Yeah. <laughs> but when we think about the people that you know we would want to die for, I think that probably very few of us would like to give our lives um, you know, for the person who would like to stab us in the back or you know, the person that we might consider the scum of the earth or, you know, uh, you know, somebody that we would consider to be unworthy in some way. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the disaster down in Florida. All, okay. those, all, all the workers, yeah. all the people that are going in there, and they are, yeah. you know, they are risking their lives. putting their lives on yep. the line yep. to try to save people or just recover people. Yeah. You know, that's, they, they don't know them. They don't know. But that type of a person, I think, is relatively rare. Mm -hmm. and yeah, well, but, but in disasters, they kind of come out of the woodwork, though. That's yeah. true. That's true. You know, they might not consciously think, oh, I'm going to go jump into the fire to save, save this person. But when the fire's there and that person's yelling for help, they do it. Yeah. And what greater disaster is there than the Great Fall? Right. 
You know, I often, when I read this verse, I think of um, uh, Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. Mm-hmm. You know, where you have the two guys who look exactly alike, and the one's kind of a you know, alcoholic, you know, scumbag, and the other guy is, uh, you know, a respectable member of society, and they both fall in love with the same woman. And, uh, you know, and the alcoholic scumbag knows that she loves the other one, and he actually smuggles him out of prison and takes his place at the guillotine. So who loved her more? You know, that's... I'm I'm always amazed, you know, reading, uh, um, reading books, watching movies, how often the themes of, you know, Christ and his salvation bleed through. Because is there a better story to be told? So God shows his love. Um, where do people where do people look to see God's love? How many good things I get? Okay. The good things I have in my life means that God loves me. All right? What else? I think it's like whenever we, f- we see that God gives us comfort to uh, deal with any kind of situations or whenever we are in trouble, he gives us his blessings and grace and uh, especially gives us the right thought and gives us the comfort to deal with the situation. Okay. So. Sometimes we find, you know, we, we look for his love in, in, in how he responds to us in our times of trouble. Yeah. Okay. Larry. Um, often you see parents with a handicapped child or an adult handicapped person and their love pours out through just helping that person have a day-to-day life. It just astounds me when that happens. All right, so sometimes we would look for seeing the love of God in the good things that other people do. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. The beauty of nature. Okay, that is another place that people will look to find God's love. Yeah. Sometimes you see it more in retrospect. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes, you know, you don't see it until after the fact. Strength of conviction. Okay. But where and when does God show his love? On the cross. Yes. Which is very much connected. That's where he's delivering the cross to us. Now, did I just say that you can't see the love of God in those other things? No. No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that if you want to look and make sure that you know that what you're seeing is the love of God, you have to see it in Christ. That that's the place that he has placed his love for you and for me to see and to know that he loves us. And then by extension, then we see it in nature. And then by extension, we see it in, in, in that person. Or, you know, by extension, we see it in the blessings and the gifts that we have in our lives. But the source and the root is when we see Jesus. That that's the place that God shows us his love. So if we want people to know God's love, I think that there are some implications um, for this reality that we want people to see Jesus. So think about this in terms of evangelism. I look at Bill because he's our evangelism chairman. Can I have some questions? <laughs> what, what's the implication when we 
do evangelism. If the place to see God's love is Christ, then we want them to see Christ. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that you take your Bible and turn it sideways and try to shove it down their throat. But you want to display Jesus to him, to them. And catch, you know, catch what they said that, um, you know, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God shows his love. So if you're dealing for a, with a sinner, because <laughs> you're always dealing with a sinner, you expect them to change and get their act together and then come to church and come believe in Jesus? Some people think they have to. Some people do think and they have they to. And they don't understand that, that the door is open to sinners. Yeah. Yeah. I have kind of two ways that I respond to, you know, once I get my life together, then I'll, you know. Then I'll come, yeah. I have two ways that I respond to that. One is when I'm dealing with somebody who is, um, you know, not part of the church, and that is, you know, you are welcome now exactly as you are. And God will work with you and in you, and he will show his love and forgiveness. You know, just come. Everyone's welcome. The other is when I'm dealing with somebody who used to be very active and, and uh, I have a, a pretty strong relationship with them and what they're actually doing is saying that, you know, you know when I'm good enough on my own terms, then I'll come back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I will look at a person like that. And I've only done this like maybe twice in my career. Well, then I guess I'll never see you again. <laughs> what do you mean? You said, you know, when you get your act together, and, well, I'm pretty sure that Jesus is the only way that you're going to get your act back together, but you're separating him from where he promises to meet you. Sometimes. Shocks, shocks him. Uh, it, it did once. Yeah. God works through the law and the gospel, right? It may have worked later in a delayed reaction, too. It's right. You don't always see the results, which That's right. makes it difficult. Especially with evangelism, because you can go through evangelism where, where you're talking to people and you're sharing with them and everything, and it just you know, falls like a lead balloon flat on the floor. And then six months, a year later, something comes up and they remember what you said, and they think, you know, gee, I talked to this guy and he, I was impressed with what he said, and, and you know, he showed me something in the Bible that I didn't realize was there. I want to know more about it, I want to discover this, I want to get into it more deeply. And you never know them. You never know that it worked. I, I mean, Jesus talks about planting seeds, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. What are maybe some of the implications of this when we're dealing with the, uh, I, I like this phrase, the repugnant cultural other. I, I picked this up from a book um, by Alan Jacobs, who is a professor at Baylor, I think. Um, and uh, um, he... Uh, he wrote a book called How to Think. I, I highly recommend that book, it's neat. Um, but uh, he talks about this repugnant cultural other, and it's, it's those people is another way of saying that. If you know, God shows his love to us by giving us his son, you know, how does the, uh, how's the verse go exactly again? Uh, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What implication does this have when uh, when we're dealing with that people that we find 
repugnantly culturally other. I mean, I, to a certain extent, you could almost say the more repugnant the more repugnant they are, the more Christ died for them. So, what does that mean for my reaction to them? Swallow it and be good. You know, we're supposed to be loving. Yeah. Not we don't have to accept the wrong that they do. We have to accept them. And I think you have to be as kind and forgiving and understanding of those people as you do with a puppy who refuses to be housebroken. You know, some people want to hold on to what they're used to. They don't want to change. Well, a puppy doesn't want to change either. And you have to just keep, you have to worry more about what you're doing and who you are so that you are showing Christ by your actions. You don't kick the puppy. You don't kick the repugnant others either. Right. This is who they are, and God willing. Well, they may, even after they become Christians, still be repugnant. Not every Christian uses deodorant. <laughs> yeah, sometimes people are repugnant for a reason. Um, and it's really not about them, and it's not about you. And I think that's where the focus needs to be. Now, I know there are a lot of people in my life who love me anyway. And if they're going to love me anyway, then I have to be able to love other people anyway. You don't have to be lovable to love other people. You have to love, not expect them to be lovable first. Yeah. The most meaningful comment that I ever received from somebody is, you changed my mind about the church. Ooh. So. Yeah. Yes, that's good. Wow. Um. So I think I've talked about this in here before, um, uh, but because uh, I don't get to go to church, I listen to the Lutheran Hour uh, before I come to church. And I usually just do that over my breakfast. It's a half an hour. And they're doing a, a series right now um, about, you know, kind of some misconceptions about Christianity. And um, one of the things that struck me in the, in the first sermon that we listened to um, when I was going around 10 mile an hour curves in Sequoia um, was uh, about misconceptions about who Jesus is and how people have misconceptions about what Christianity is and talking about how do we respond to that and uh, you know and one of the things that really struck me is just how casual he was about the whole thing matter-of-factly yeah it's just yeah yeah, yeah people have mm -hmm misconceptions about who Jesus is. And yeah, you know, sometimes that's really awkward. They're on the outside, you know, okay. How are you going to meet them? Well, you knucklehead, well, you know, how could you not know this? And No. They are who they are. And that's exactly how Jesus died for them. How do you love them exactly as they are? How do you meet them? where they're at. How about this one? What are the implications of this revelation you know, that uh, God shows his love in that um, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us when we see abuse and brokenness in churches? Key word. We're still sinners. Yeah. It's where Satan does his greatest work. Church. Luther liked to say, where man builds a church, the devil builds a chapel. 
I just wanted to comment on some things earlier <clears throat> in that I don't think the messaging is wrong in Christian radio. Um, the gift is there. What the message is, is receive. Right? There's mm -hmm. seek. There's knock. There's mm -hmm. come to me. Mm -hmm. So there is action on our part to accept the gift. So it doesn't mean you're doing anything other than saying, and when I'm at my weakest, you're at your strongest. And it's usually where a lot of people finally convert, right? Or accept, maybe just say that, is that they realize that there is nothing they can do. Whether you're filthy rich and are lonely as heck, and that's when you come and realize there's a hole in your life, or you're just in a ditch, in a gutter, right? So I just want to make sure that I think the messaging is good. I think the wrong part, or the part in my view, is that these calls at the edge of concerts to come up and now you're saved and that's all there is to it. There you go. Yeah. I think that sends the wrong message. Um, I think that maybe that's a good start, but then you should be praying that the Holy Spirit grows in your heart, that that these walls you built up start, you know, that you're open now for the Spirit to work through you. Um, and I think that's important because when you are in outreach, it's really the, the best outreach you could do is living your life and being an example, because that's really going to speak the most, right? And when people see that, then they, you know, they'll come to you, especially when they're having difficulties. There's something different there. On the other Just hand, though, comments. I do think that there is a little bit of a problem, um, especially, and, you know, I never like to badmouth other Christians and everything, but... I do think that there is something that's seriously wrong with sort of this evangelical mindset mm -hmm. of there is a binary choice, either you're in or you're out. Because if you read through the entirety of the Old Testament, every single time you give a choice to man, they say no. Mm -hmm. um, but he doesn't stop. Or they and say yes and do no. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and God God doesn't leave the choice to man. He, he never leaves it at no. He always pursues. He always goes back. Even when you're reading through like Ezekiel and you're, and you're reading through all of this, you know, doomsday stuff. Always he comes back and he says, but I am with you. You will know that I am the Lord. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I have mixed feelings about you know, the whole Christian radio thing. Um, you know, and, and some of this is personal taste. I love Rich Mullins. I love Michael Card. Um, I think that some of what I see happening in Christian music is more more industry than it is music, than it is you know thoughtful theology. Um, you know, seventeen words on repeat. Uh, you know that that type of a thing. Um, uh, but at the same time, I also think it really has real value. Um, because I think that it hits people sometimes where they're at. You know, um, I I tend to not be like overly emotional in the in terms of the music that I I like in worship. Mm -hmm. You know, I love you know good old fashioned Lutheran hymns that are just like doctrine. Yeah. 
10 verses for, straight from the small catechism? 15 verses. What are you talking about? Yeah. You know, and just really rich theology. I dig that. Yeah. But I also understand that, you know, at, at some point that can be kind of mind-numbing. And, uh, you know, and it's not necessarily going to meet people where they are. Um, you know, I think about when I was in... Uh, I, I guess I'll have to wrap up with, uh, with this, but uh, I, was, I think back to when I was in college. You know, I grew up uh, in a Lutheran church, Trinity Lutheran Church in Manistee. I went to the day school and all of that stuff. And every Sunday, um, we did what we would call Divine Service One except for if we didn't have communion uh, at the early service, then we would do matins. You know, but every week it was the same thing. And when I was in college, I kind of rebelled against that. I was, this is not healthy. This is not good. It's just you know, dead rote, you know, all of that. And uh, I went to the, uh, the church in Ann Arbor, uh, St. Luke's Lutheran Church in Ypsilanti, um, that was known for its contemporary worship. And, uh, um, and then one Sunday, I went there for the contemporary worship, and I was so upset because I discovered that they were doing the traditional liturgy. Like 5 and 15, for those of you old-timers. But they did it with guitars and piano rather than the organ. And that kind of rocked my world and uh, changed my mindset in terms of what's going on in when we gather for worship, you know, and uh, um, I've, I've, I've come to really, truly appreciate the liturgy in a whole new way, um, but I think it can be set differently, and I think that the message of the gospel, um, it can be set in ways that are appealing to people, you know, that they will get a hearing. And I think that's a good thing. I also think that sometimes you get some dross with the silver. And I, I've kind of come to be a little bit, I'll trust the Holy Spirit to work that out. You know, especially if it brings me into a relationship with the person that we can continue to kind of walk together in the scriptures and in faith. Because ultimately, um, what I started out with, that this, this idea that you know, God comes uh, to us, that we are the ones who are weak, we're the ones who are ungodly, and the whole salvation thing is completely God's work, that, that, that means I'm going to trust him even when people got some mixed up ideas or some bad behaviors in their lives. That doesn't mean that we just let that sit. You know, like, you know, it's okay, you, know, you can keep doing that. But at the same time, um, I, I trust that the Spirit's at work and that God's doing this work of bringing life and forgiveness and changing people. So, all right, well, I should have known better than to you know, go through verse 11. Like. <laughs> we'll pick up at verse, mm, nope, I gotta finish up verse uh, eight before we uh, uh, move on. So, um, thank you everybody. God's blessings on your week. If you haven't gone to church yet, go to church, preferably here.